The first part of their journey was performed in too melancholy a disposition to be otherwise than tedious and unpleasant. But as they drew towards the I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week we're looking at chapters 6 to 11 of Sense and Sensibility. Do you have a hundred word summary? Yes, and I actually found it easier this time than last time because there was so much detail in those first few chapters. And this is, I found, much easier to compress into a hundred words. Yeah, well, I mean, she was just giving all that background. It was all that enormous financial and marriage background. Yeah. So much detail in yes. it. Yes. So this time, the Dashwoods arrive at Barton Cottage, where Sir John Middleton is aggressively hospitable. They visit Barton Park, where they also meet Mrs Jennings and Colonel Brandon. The Colonel is the only person who appreciates Marianne's piano playing. When Marianne and Margaret go for a walk... They're caught in the rain and Marianne slips and twists her ankle. She's carried home by Willoughby and in the following days he and Marianne make themselves conspicuous by their evident preference for one another. Eleanor likes Willoughby but disapproves of their openness. However, Colonel Brandon doesn't want to see Marianne change. So that's mine. What was yours? Oh, no, nothing like as nice. The Dashwoods settle into Barton Cottage although they find Sir John and Mrs Jennings a bit vulgar and embarrassing. Marianne is appalled when Mrs Jennings decides that Colonel Brandon is in love with her since she thinks he is far too old and boring. But her belief that she will never fall in love is shattered when she meets the charming John Willoughby who shares all her interests. Eleanor is concerned that they are too public in their affection as it is giving rise to gossip and joking. Right. It's interesting that neither summary even mentioned Lady Middleton because she's really such almost an entity. Yes, and Jane Austen is so anti her, and it's a bit hard to know why. She doesn't say anything nasty <laughs> to them, but she's a nuisance with her children, and otherwise all she tries to do is control her, her mother and her husband mm. when they're being offensive. <laughs> One thing that struck me is we get quite a lot of detailed descriptions of the landscape and the area. Yes, so, and don't we get that anywhere else in Jane Austen? Well, I think not as much. Yeah, we get this, the situation of the house was good. High hills rose immediately behind and at no great distance on each side, some of which were open downs, others cultivated and woody. The village of Barton was chiefly on one of those hills and formed a pleasant view. The prospect in front was more extensive commanded the whole of the yeah. valley she's actually laying out the landscape for us which i don't think she really does anywhere else much. i think the only place i can think of is in mansfield park when they drive down and they sit back and they look at mr rushworth's house and even then it's not the scenery you get it of pemberley yes but is this is romantic scenery this could almost come out of out of Scott or Byron mm. or someone. Yeah, see, I didn't, I didn't read it as quite so romantic. I read it as more prosaic description because there's not, there's not many adjectives in there up on right. high heels. But what she's really giving you is, it's almost like a verbal map. It was sort of the topography, right? Yes. She describes Barton Cottage. As a house, Barton Cottage, though small, was comfortable and compact. But as a cottage, it was defective, for the building was regular, the roof was tiled, 
The window shutters were not painted green, nor were the walls covered with honeysuckles. I don't know the technical terminology for this, but it's kind of like that first sentence in Pride and Prejudice where the narrator is speaking as if she holds certain views yes. when in fact she's ridiculing those views. And I think you, it's something you also find quite a lot in the juvenilia. Yes. She's very much relying on the reader to, to identify that this is... Uh, yes, that, 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 that is fun. a romanticised thing. Yeah, and that she's poking fun at it. Yes. The thing that was fascinating to me about the cottage was we get a picture of the cottage and then you get Mrs Dashwood saying... These parlours are both too small for such parties of our friends as I hope to see often collected here. And I just think she's almost fantasising. A few paragraphs further on, it says their visitors, except those from Barton Park, were not many because they were they were not prepared to visit anyone that they could, whose house they could walk to. Mm. And you think, well, I mean, she, she's just fantasising then. <laughs> But I suppose it's very much a picture of her personality. She mm. goes in and she thinks, how can we change it? Yes. <laughs> what can we do about it? How can, how can we use our imaginations mm. on it? I wonder whether four bedrooms seemed minute to them or not. Well, I was thinking about it because it says, again, you get this very detailed description of the cottage, I think more so than possibly any other house. We've got, yes, yeah. we know much more yeah. about it than yeah. we know about the yeah. Bennett's house. Yeah. So we know that there's an entrance, there's a parlour on either side. At the back are offices. Now, does that mean it was might have been an estate manager's cottage No, at no, 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 that means the kitchen. Right, okay. That means the kitchen and the laundry and the still room and, you know, okay. anything right. you have that like okay. that. And eventually the toilets, I suppose. Well, yeah. I suppose the, yeah. you know, the latrines of whatever sort they yeah. have. And then upstairs there are the four bedrooms, then above that there are the garrets, which are presumably where the servants will sleep. Yes. So, but if there's four bedrooms, they've obviously got one bedroom as a spare room that Edward stays in. Well, they in. have to because there's so, that talk about the great. Yeah, <laughs> um, about her replacing the grate in the spare room. Yeah, so that le- does lead to the question: Who is sharing? Presumably, Eleanor and Marianne are sharing, and Margaret gets a room to herself, or are Marianne and Margaret sharing because Eleanor's the oldest? Or are they having two spare rooms for all these parties of their friends <laughs> that are being expected? And Marianne and Ellen are together and Margaret is still sleeping in her mother's room. I mean, that's another possibility. Yeah. Or, in that case, Margaret in her mother's room and Eleanor and Marianne having a separate room each. Yes, well, yeah. well we just don't yeah, know. We don't. The TV adaptations tend to put Eleanor and Marianne in the same room. Well, as Jane, I think, thinking about how... Jane Austen and Cassandra yeah. always shared a room. Yeah. The closeness between the two sisters is, in spite of their differences, Yes, um, and maybe it doesn't always come through as well as it might in the book, but I think they are meant to be very, very close in spite of their differences. Oh, yes. Well, they know one another's opinions and they each admire the other's artistic abilities. Yeah. Um, Eleanor sort of just thinks the world of Marianne's playing. Marianne thinks the world of Eleanor's drawing. Yeah. And... Now, another thing that struck me is these chapters, I think, are the ones that introduce what I see as one of the main themes of the novel. My Cambridge edition, in the introduction, there's a bit where it talks about how tired English literature professors are of receiving yet another essay about how Eleanor represents sense and Marianne represents sensibility. (laughs) But it does go on to say, but it's kind of unavoidable in this book. And I think it is. It is is very schematic, though. I I think to say Eleanor represents 
sense is not quite right. It's the point is that Eleanor is defending sense. Yeah. Is, well, I mean, no, it's not I even think it's, sense. She's she's defending, you know, keeping the rules, keeping your privacy. More, I think, even you said earlier that she doesn't want them to be laughed at, which it doesn't exactly say mm. that that's her purpose. I was mm. sort of quite interested mm. that you put that in it because mm. I don't think it says that. Mm-hmm. It's more or less, no, she doesn't want a Marianne making an exhibition of herself. Yeah. But look at the society. <laughs> I mean, who's going to care when you've got Mrs Jennings and Sir John being so broad and mm. crude and so on? Yeah. What I was more thinking was it's not that they are symbolic of sense and sensibility. No, it's just no. a contrast between the personalities, one of whom is exhibiting sense and one exhibiting sensibility. But what is really, I think, introduced in these chapters is what is it that Eleanor is exhibiting and it's this emphasis on propriety yes which comes up several times so what Eleanor is concerned about is this need to behave in accordance with the social requirements when you're in a social situation you play your part in the social situation you don't do what Willoughby and Marianne do which is display your affection and you also don't Talk only to each other and ignore everyone else. Yes. Though, goodness sake, given the, the, the situation they've just been dumped into, are these manners going to matter? I mean, uh, is there anything Marianne can be doing? You've got Mrs Jennings and Sir John joking and carrying on and walking all over their feelings and all over their sensibilities. And you've just got Marianne. Is she even offensive to them? Not really. Well, it does say... Um, I mean, they're offensive when they talk about Colonel Brandon yeah, to one I was, another. I was actually going to get to that in a minute, but what I was going to say was... If their evenings at the park were concluded with cards, he cheated himself and all the rest of the party to get her a good hand. <laughs> but if everyone would know that. It's not as though he's truly cheating them out of money or anything. Mm. He's... It's, in a sense, his display of his feelings for Marianne. But then it also goes on to say, when obliged to separate for a couple of dances, were careful to stand together and scarcely spoke a word to anybody else. Yes. Now, I think Eleanor is probably the only one who actually censures this because it then goes on to say, such conduct made them, of course, most exceedingly laughed at, but ridicule could not shame and seemed hardly to provoke them. But I think just the wording used and the way it's described, I think you get the sense that the narrator is on Eleanor's side. Oh, I I don't think there's any doubt the narrator's on Eleanor's Mm. side. But it's also, though, it seems to me, it's almost a theoretical battle between the sisters, which really doesn't relate much to the situation they're in, because quite honestly, anything anyone does in that situation is not going to really seem very strange. What, because the Jennings... Because of, because of the sort of the whole atmosphere of Sir John and Mrs Jennings never watching what they say. All they, they can do is trample all over other people's feelings. Although we don't know about the other people. It's like you said when we were talking about Pride and Prejudice, she creates this sense of a community without really telling you about anyone. Yes. In this one, I think she does it less successfully. When they first go to Barton 
Park. Sir John wanted to get more people and apologised that he couldn't. Yes. And then later on, it says Sir John was a blessing to all the juvenile part of the neighbourhood for in summer he was forever forming parties to eat cold ham and chicken out of doors and he held private balls and little had Mrs Dashwood or her daughters imagined when they first came to Devonshire that so many engagements would arise to occupy their time. So we don't know. It could be that it's not in fact the kind of casual company that Sir John and Mrs Jennings offer but they're the only ones we see so we don't really get a sense of what the rest of the community is like whereas I think in Pride and Prejudice even though so few of them are named as you pointed out we still I think we have a sense of what that community is like and of how it is different from the Bingleys and the Darcys. Yes and yet you've got the other thing that pretty certainly Sir John Middleton is probably fairly senior in that community yeah. so possibly they're setting the tone of it mm-hmm. but I mean also again you just wonder because they, they don't go anywhere else they only go to the people they can visit by walking yeah so presumably they won't go to dinner with these people they don't pay morning calls to them mm-hmm. they know them only in the context of the social occasions provided by the Middletons. Mm. So, in a sense, they don't actually have much other contact. Mm. But because of Sir John Middleton, they're at his place just about every couple of days. Yeah. And he could he could be a major, major one. It's just a, a little bit in the next chapter when they're all ready for that party of pleasure. They all seem to be his saying, well, no, we can't break it up, we've got to do something. So they all stay together. Well, they don't stay together, they all split out. Mm. But, uh, I suppose there is the point that Eleanor spends a lot of time talking with Colonel Brandon because she finds him the only sensible person to talk to and you think why on earth does he spend it spend so much time there (laughs) i mean there he is he's this man apparently of sense he's got his own property around his property there must be other people Mm. and yet he turns up at barton where they mrs jennings goes on and on at him and has got her own version of all his private circumstances and spreads it around Mm. there's nothing for him to talk about Well, maybe we assume that before the book began, he only visited occasionally. And then possibly after the book, he visited more often because of course for Marianne. Or or once Marianne's there, instead of going home, Mm. he sticks around. Yes, that that is complete explanation. (laughs) I accept it now. That's why he's there. Mm. Otherwise, he was just sort of doing a neighbourly thing. So just going back to something we said earlier, which is how Willoughby and Marianne criticise Colonel Brandon. This is almost Willoughby bringing out Marianne's worst side because Marianne has always been quite critical and judgmental. But when she was criticising Edward, whether to Eleanor or to her mother, she was saying, isn't it a pity? I'm so sad that he can't um, read with more passion. And criticising John and Fanny again, she's critical, but there's something much more mean-spirited, I feel, in their criticism of Colonel Brandon, and that is driven by Willoughby, not by Marianne. Yes, I don't think it's mean-spirited so much as just Willoughby trying to be clever. Mm. He, he wants to boost himself, not in the so much mean-spirited as just choosing someone to show off about. It does show a certain... Maybe mean-spirited is too strong a word, but... Oh, no. It's well, no, a, a lack of empathy. A, yeah, a lack of empathy because Willoughby says the kind of man who everybody speaks well of and nobody cares about, whom all are delighted to see and nobody remembers to talk to. 
and then it's that is exactly what I think of him cried Marianne so it's like he sets it up and then it goes on to say that is to say cried Marianne contemptuously he has told you that in the East Indies the climate is hot and the mosquitoes are troublesome now that is much nastier than anything she says about John or Fanny or Edward Edward you don't expect her to say nasty things about but she certainly could say more about Mm. John and Fanny and it's that word contemptuously I don't well, no, I, I, I think it's even the sort of thing she says. Mm. I mean, there she is. She's supposed to admire people with brains. Yeah. But I suppose one of the things that, you know, I keep thinking is each of them has taken up an attitude which they've probably picked up from their reading that Eleanor is picking up a sort of a Dr Johnson attitude of society matters, society matters. And Marianne is picking up a romantic one, of feelings matter, feelings matter. Which which is her criticism in her next statement about Colonel Brandon. She says that he has neither genius, taste nor spirit, which I guess is everything that her reading is making important. But, but I just still feel that the things she says in this exchange, she, uh, if she wouldn't have said them before Willoughby. She wouldn't have no. said them in that way. She might have felt that Colonel Brandon has neither genius, taste nor spirit and that yeah, she doesn't really need to be concerned with him, but I just don't think she would have expressed it in that well, way. Well, I mean, you know, I think this is the sort of thing that what we are seeing, which I'm sure Jane Austen was realising, that he is, in a sense, debasing Marianne a bit. He's giving a nasty twist to what were these deep romantic feelings mm. of you must respond to poetry. And he says, oh, yes, 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 I go along with that. But he's the one that gives it this nasty turn mm. of if you think awful things about people, well, that's something you should express, mm. whereas she's never done that before. Mm. Yeah, as we said, there's not much dialogue in those first few chapters, but it just feels... Yeah, it yeah. feels as though they're each of them encouraging one another yeah. in, in different ways, mm. yes. Because when Marianne first grasps what they're saying about Colonel Brandon and herself, it says she hardly knew whether most to laugh at its absurdity or censure its impertinence, for she considered it as an unfeeling reflection on the Colonel's advanced years and on his forlorn condition as an old bachelor. So again, that's the same level of compassion that she has for Edward because Edward can't read properly. And, And actually right at the very end of the chapter when... Colonel Brandon has let Eleanor realise that he's had some sad love affair in his past. Then Jane Austen says, if it had been Marianne, yes, as a narrator, she says, if it had been Marianne, Marianne would have started inventing (laughs) a a sad story for him. Eleanor is perfectly prepared to be very satirical about Marianne's views. Marianne isn't. Marianne answers Eleanor straight back. You know, you've got it wrong, Eleanor. Mm. This is not the right thing. Yeah. Whereas she she makes this satirical stuff about what she's found out about Willoughby. What, what else can she <laughs> find out? It's like she's just trying to prick the balloon of Marianne's passion just a little bit. Oh, but there, oh. there's nothing, again, there's nothing cruel about oh, it. Oh, absolutely not. No, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's gentle. Long, it's part of a long joking relationship. Yeah. It's, and she takes it's, this. She, she is absolutely laughing at Marianne, but it's gentle laughing at Marianne. Oh, and Marianne knows about it. It's part of a long-term thing. When she does that to Marianne, Marianne rep- responds absolutely straight and with passion yeah and then it's mrs dashwood that says eleanor was only joking you know that yes. and yes maybe it is a little bit mean of eleanor to be 
undercutting Marianne like that, but you still feel that there is love behind it. Oh, absolutely. And, not a moment to yeah. think otherwise. Yeah. No, there's no way you don't know how deeply Eleanor cares about Marianne. Mm. Eleanor is terribly aware of Marianne's responses and Marianne's feelings, whereas Marianne really doesn't really know much about Eleanor. Well, part of that is because Eleanor is very internal, which again is part of this whole self-command thing that comes yes. out more as the book goes along. Yeah. But also, Marianne does care about Eleanor. It's why she's distressed that Edward lacks passion. She can see that Eleanor likes Edward and she she wants Eleanor to have the man that she deserves and she's so disappointed that Edward does not meet her, her yes. very exacting standards. Yeah, absolutely. There is this really close, in both parts such a desire for the sister to never be disappointed and to get everything she wants and deserves. But again, I think the author comes down on Eleanor's side and is saying, well, Eleanor has a clearer picture of what might go wrong for Marianne. (laughs) Marianne's standards applied to Eleanor maybe aren't quite right. Yes. So did you have a favourite sentence from these chapters? Yes, I do. But you've in fact already read it out, but I'll still still read it again because... (laughs) I want to make a particular point about it. Yep. Brandon is just the kind of man, said Willoughby one day, when they were talking of him together, whom everybody speaks well of and nobody cares about, whom all are delighted to see and nobody remembers to talk to. Now, the thing, it's not so much that I enjoy the sentences, what fascinates me is that you've got Jane Austen giving Willoughby an almost Oscar Wilde style <laughs> epigram. It reminded me immediately of a cynic is the man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Yes. And then some other ones like, all women become like their mothers, that is their tragedy. No man does, that is his. <laughs> I mean, they were a bit smarter. But there isn't all that much in between. Mm. But there you've got Jane Austen, when Willoughby's being clever and smart and so on, she gives him something which is almost the pattern of the epigrams that Oscar Wilde was Mm. using. I just thought it was worth noting that Mm. you've suddenly got that pattern. Yeah, and I think another thing that's significant about that is, for all that I said it's a bit mean-spirited, it is still, it goes towards showing Willoughby as being a very witty person. And somebody who likes using his mind. Yes, so my favourite line actually comes from the same exchange. Oh, right. <laughs> it's a, so it comes just after Marianne has said that Colonel Brandon has told Eleanor that in the East Indies the climate is hot and the mosquitoes are troublesome. And what Eleanor says to that is, he would have told me so, I doubt not, had I made any such inquiries, but they happen to be points on which I had been previously informed. <laughs> it's not heavy sarcasm, but it's lightly sarcastic. Yes. And very relatable. Yes. The character we're going to talk about this week is Mrs Jennings and I thought I might start by just reading the first introduction of her because I think there's some interesting bits in there. It says, Mrs Jennings, Lady Middleton's mother, was a good-humoured, merry, fat, elderly woman who talked a great deal, seemed very happy and rather vulgar. And I think it's interesting that the word fat is used there because Jane Austen does sometimes go a bit for fat shaming. Does she? Yes. Who who else has Um, she? I'm thinking in persuasion of 
Um, Mrs. Musgrove's large fat signs. Oh, right, yes. I, I think that's about the only other one. Mm. I mean, you know, you probably could have had a go about Lady Bertram. She was probably fat, but we don't hear much about her, do we? <laughs> well, you kind of assume she was fat because she never gets any exercise. But, yes. But it also, the fact that it says she was rather vulgar. I suppose the thing that struck me was the picture that you get in the earlier parts of the book. She's not really a comic character in the sense that we listen to her talking. No. But what you are told, she must have been appalling. Mm. It must have been absolutely dreadful to go and visit the Middletons and immediately just waiting for the next obvious joke from Mrs Mm. Jennings and poor old Eleanor who's had to listen to her over and over again tell about the death of her husband (laughs) it says um eleanor has heard it she could have learned it off by heart yes she was an everlasting talker and from the first had regarded eleanor with a kindness which ensured her a large share of the discourse Uh, she had repeated her own history to eleanor three or four times and had eleanor's memory been equal to her means of improvement she might have known very early in their acquaintance all the particulars of mr jennings last illness and what he said to his wife a few minutes before he died so, yeah, she's an inveterate talker. She's, it says she's very vulgar. It also uses quite negative language about her. We do find out in the following chapters that she is vulgar. Well, you can call it vulgar the way she talks about Colonel Brandon and his little love child. And yes. stuff. She doesn't use the word love child until later. Oh, she, I mean, well, she doesn't mention it. goes yeah. all the way through. No, yeah. that he, the child is brought up. Yes. She sort of rather coyly says publicly, we will not say how near a relationship for fear of shocking the young ladies and then says quietly to Eleanor who she must have enormous respect for because Eleanor's only 19 um, but she's well, but they, they probably daughter. do have some 15 year olds there yeah yeah but the other thing again presenting her in this really negative light at the start is again not in these chapters we're reading but when Willoughby and Marianne have gone off and, and then they come back and no one knows where they were Mrs. Jennings finds out because she had actually made her own woman inquire of Mr. Willoughby's groom. And I think that word actually just yeah. telegraphs just how extremely ex- vulgar yes. it, it seems yeah. to be. Yes. How, yeah. And what how an, intrusive. Yes, yes, how intrusive. What an appalling act it is to, to do. So at the start, you get this picture of Mrs. Jennings as someone who's it does say she's good-humoured. You don't certainly get any sort of impression of her having any malice or anything, but zero sensitivity to anybody else yes and and massively vulgar massively talkative quite boring and someone who the more exquisite sensibilities of the the dashwood family just feel she's almost not well Eleanor, eleanor makes that point her society would not do us any yes what eleanor says of her is and this is after Mrs. Jennings has invited them to go to London yes, with her. Yes. She says, though I think very well of Mrs. Jennings' heart, she is not a woman whose society can afford us pleasure or whose protection will give us consequence. Yes. Basically, that's her feeling, is that it's all very well to meet her with Sir John Middleton, but they do not want to be seen as, you know, as her protégés. Mm. But then this all turns around when they go to London. The first thing before they even leave is that we learn that Mrs Jennings has a settled habitation of her own. Since the death of her husband, who had traded with success in a less elegant part of town, she had resided every winter in a house in one of the streets near Portman Square. And which I gather is a moderately... Oh, yes, you know, yes. A, quite a good part of well, London. Well, you know, one, one of those places where somebody 
had bought a leasehold and built all these houses, Mm. which people then held on leaseholds. Yes. And then when they arrived there, we get told the house was handsome and handsomely fitted up, and the young ladies were immediately put in possession of a very comfortable apartment. So it turns out that, in fact, she's living in a good part of town, so that's a good thing. Yes. And then when their brother John meets her, and of course we can't really pay that much attention to what John says, but I do think it's interesting that he describes Mrs Jennings as... An exceedingly well-behaved woman, though not so elegant as her daughter. Your sister need not have any scruple even of visiting her, which, to say the truth, has been a little the case, and very naturally, for we only knew that Mrs Jennings was the widow of a man who had got all his money in a low way, and Fanny and Mrs Ferrers were both strongly prepossessed that neither she nor her daughters were such kind of woman as Fanny would like to associate with but I can now carry her a most satisfactory account of both. <laughs> so again, we can't really trust John, but John is not immediately repelled by her. What we probably can trust is for John to be like Oscar Wilde's cynic and, and know the value of yes. everything. Yes. And he probably sort of runs his eye over the value of Mrs Jennings' property, her furniture, her footman. Her... Yes, because, of course, he's quite pleased that Eleanor and Marianne have become her protégé because he thinks she, she might leave them some money. Well, he actually says she might leave them money. In yes. spite of the fact she's got two daughters of her own. So there's that side of things that, in spite of being vulgar, in fact, she can give them some level of consequence. It's not like staying with her, they're going to be on the outskirts of society. They are not the aristocracy, but certainly very well, solidly. very much the country gentry. Yes. Well, after all, her daughters are both married country gentlemen. Hmm. But the other thing that really comes out when they're in London is her kindness. But yes, sometimes her kindness, because she's still a bit vulgar and a little bit insensitive, can cause pain to them. But... That visit, she is so put out by Marianne getting sick and yet all she does is, you know, she brings her wine, she's sorry for her. She is so angry with Willoughby and then later on when she hears that Edward has been cut off she doesn't know about Edward and Eleanor so she assumes Edward and Lucy Steele is a committed relationship and she is livid about what Mrs Ferrers has done. Yes. Absolutely furious. Even when you think back over her attitude to Colonel Brandon, that in fact, you know, she genuinely cares about him and she's, you know, she's worried about this rather sad man Mm. and she's found out all about his background. Mm. And of course she gets it completely wrong when she goes through that period of thinking Colonel Brandon has now fallen for Eleanor. But again, she's so enthusiastic about it and it's not just because of the possibility for gossip and talking about weddings and everything. She's so pleased for them and then when it's Marianne again, she's happy for them. And also when when Marianne gets really sick at Cleveland and Charlotte has to go away with the baby and Mr Palmer has to go with her, Mrs Jennings won't budge. She is determined to stay there and look after Marianne. So it's not just being vulgar and wanting to gossip about people. No, she's she's not even intrusive. She could be a lot more intrusive. Mm. But she she more or less leaves Marianne to Eleanor. Mm. She allows Eleanor to decide what's good for Marianne. Mm. And if Eleanor doesn't want her to do something, she won't. Mm. It's just interesting that at the beginning we have all this derogatory comment about her, but we don't know what was vulgar about her the way we do with Mrs Bennett. We don't have the detailed speeches. We don't have her words, but we do know that she's causing pain by making jokes. We do know that she's getting her servants to interrogate other people's servants. We may suspect Mrs Bennett does that, but we don't know for sure. I find it really interesting that 
Mrs. Jennings is a minor character presented as a comic character and then at a certain point your perceptions and the character's perceptions of her completely change. She herself doesn't change but suddenly we move from being critical of her to seeing her as being a kind-hearted person. Yes. You also actually get this about Mr. Palmer but I can't think of any other character, any other minor character in Jane Austen, and particularly any other minor comic character, where you have that sort of reversal. Normally, they're what you see is what you get. Yeah. So it's interesting that in this somewhat flawed, somewhat journeyman work, yeah. she has that degree of subtlety in presentation of a minor comic character. Yes. This week, what I'm going to talk about in the historical section is what the gentry of Jane Austen's time did with themselves all day long. It's particularly prompted by this little passage. The ordinary pursuits, which had given to Norland half the charm, were engaged in again with far greater enjoyment than Norland had been able to afford since the loss of their father. Sir John Middleton who called on them every day for the first fortnight and who was not in the habit of seeing much occupation at home, could not conceal his amazement at finding them always employed. And this just sort of brought up the other thing that a couple of times when I've been talking on other aspects about this sort of class was the extent to which when you say, well, what did they do with themselves? And you have to say, well, they visited one another. What else did they do? <laughs> there, there is actually, on Amazon, there is a one-star review of Pride and Prejudice and the comment is, just a bunch of people visiting each other. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, what this then made me think a bit more about was, well, it reminded me of this book, which was one of the very early sociological classics, though it, it's not as central as Marx or Weber, which is a book by Thorstein Veblen, or if that's how you pronounce him, called The Theory of the Leisure Class. And it was published in 1899. And what he was looking at was what had been happening in America at that time, which was what came to be called the Gilded Age of this period where you had all these incredibly rich people spending lots and lots of money on things. But he tried to put them into a context. And he says almost all stratified societies have a leisure class which is at the top. The occupations of the class are correspondingly diversified but they have the common economic characteristic of being non-industrial. These non-industrial upper class occupations may be roughly comprised under government, warfare, religious observances and sports. (laughs) And if you think about it this is the sort of thing that is what Jane Austen's characters, and particularly the ones in Sense and Sensibility, are engaged in. We don't hear much about them doing anything in government. Sir John Middleton isn't a member of Parliament. Mr Palmer may. He's thinking of going in for Parliament, but we'll talk more of that when we talk about Mr Palmer. But I think it's probably likely that Sir John was a Justice of the Peace, if nothing else, because the Justice of the Peace is used to get together. And obviously he wouldn't, well, he he would not want to avoid anything that (laughs) that other people did. He also went in for hunting, which also involved a lot of people. But otherwise, mainly, there were just people visiting one another. 
Oh, one other thing that comes out of Veblen that one could think about in relation to these people in Sense and Sensibility is one of the things he said that economically, and he was supposed to be writing an economic treatise rather than a straight social one, was that they went in for what he called conspicuous consumption. He didn't think much of these Vanderbilts and Rockefellers and so on, spending all this money. But what he also said was that then created a demand for unnecessary goods right down the society. Everyone looked at what the people above them had and wanted to have the same. And I was just wondering, do you think that is characteristic of, say, even of the Dashwoods? Well, certainly there's that bit, which we'll be coming to in a few weeks' time, when Edward visits and Margaret says, I wish someone would give us a fortune apiece. <laughs> and then Edward says, what magnificent orders would travel from this family to London? What a happy day for booksellers, music sellers and print shops. You, Miss Dashwood, would give a general commission for every new print of merit to be sent to you. And as for Marianne, I know her greatness of soul. There would not be music enough in London to content her. And books, Thompson, Cooper, Scott, she would buy them all over and over again. She would buy up every copy, I believe, to prevent their falling into unworthy hands. So that's conspicuous consumption, but it is consumption driven by artistic sensibility. This is the sort of thing they can do. The arts, and in a sense at this period even the sciences, and the way the Dashwood women spend their time is mainly in artistic things. So when Sir John is surprised that they're always doing things, yes. is this the kinds of things they were doing at Norland which would have been painting and music and going for walks and mm -hmm. so on? Yes. Okay. Because in my book about the making of the 1995 Pride and Prejudice and also Emma Thompson's diaries about sense and sensibility, one of the things the filmmakers had to look at is what are the people doing? In Emma Thompson's Sense and Sensibility Diary, she talks about a meeting they have when she was asked yet again what physical activities can be found for Eleanor and Marianne. Painting, sewing, embroidery, writing letters, pressing leaves, it's all depressingly girly. And in Pride and Prejudice it says that one of the directors was keen that the Bennett girls should be active in their scenes rather than just doing their embroidery. So they found out games that they might have played aside from cards and then there are scenes of them in the garden cutting off flowers and herbs and things. They wanted to avoid lots of scenes in which everyone just sits and talks. Though I think a bit later morning calls were more or less formalised. It was that you came in and you sat there. There were different times you were supposed to stay mm -hmm. and go visiting people. I mean, if, if a young man had been asked to dinner, he was expected to turn up the next day and sit for a quarter of an hour in the hostess's drawing room. And I mean, Sir John's always calling on them. Mm. I bet he isn't yeah. doing anything. But also, the sort of sport they were doing is conspicuous consumption. The hunt was something that these foxes are allowed to roam loose and somebody is spending all this money on keeping hounds, probably Sir John Middleton, and, of course, all that keeping of game birds for shooting. Though that was also uh, actual consumption. You shot them and then you ate them. Well, they did eat them, but nobody ate the fox. No. One thing that I did wonder, and this again is something that gets made more of in some of the pop culture adaptations, is this big 
drop in income the women have. So they've gone from having a household full of servants to just three servants. Yeah. Does this mean there would be some things they would be doing that maybe they didn't before, like they might be doing more plain sewing than embroidery? Almost yes. certainly they. Well, after all, remember when Fanny goes to Portsmouth, she spends all her time finishing off the shirts. Yes, but are there other things that they might perhaps... Well, I mean, the point is we don't know that they wouldn't be doing some of the cooking because you know, Mr Collins assumed that the Bennetts yes. would be and obviously the Lucas girls were always yeah. helped with pudding, so they could. So they, that also could be some of the things Sir John was surprised to see them doing or would they have... Oh, I don't think they he... would have been... He would have seen what they were doing uh, in the household. I suppose it's not a very big house, so probably if they had, what, a couple of servants, they, I, I think it says they have three servants. Yes. So there's, you know, there's not all that much for them to do, particularly if the women do the dusting, if they, which I think might be a late Victorian one, but washing the, the good china from breakfast in the living room, having a basin brought in, but I think that might be a later mm-hmm. development. So they were probably doing things like that. Mm-hmm. And some of those Sir John would have seen and maybe some he wouldn't. Yeah, I'd, I'd say he wouldn't. He probably wouldn't have even seen them if they were doing any washing. Oh, yes, of course. In, in the Watsons, there's that bit about the sisters being involved in the Great Wash. I'm a little unclear as to what exactly that means. The Great Wash was every six weeks. That's why people had a dozen of everything uh-huh. because they'd only do the washing once every six weeks. It was a great wash because it was all the sheets and all the underclothes and all those Uh things would all be washed at once and it would take perhaps almost a week to get it done. So I forget the exact wording in that book but that doesn't necessarily mean they're directly involved in it just the whole house is upside down because it's well, happening. everybody's doing it and they would be supervising and mm-hmm. also perhaps doing the, some of the final ironing and so okay. on like that and maybe if there was lace or something they'd be washing that themselves they'd probably be washing that and well they might wash that in the stockings themselves mm-hmm. so they might wash that through the weeks whereas of course for sir john and lady middleton all of that would be happening Oh, in the, the background. Would be ha- well, she would say to the housekeeper, it's time for the great wash. <laughs> and then it would just happen. And it would happen, yes, yep. yes. That is the way Jane Austen would have grown up. She grew up somewhere that was really quite busy because her father was running a school and the boys lived at the school and their mother was continually busy doing all these other things and they were still able to do all the Austen intellectual things. Mm. So... You could see Jane Austen could probably be a bit satirical, (laughs) rather like Veblen, about these people with nothing to do. Mm. So, of course, one of the things the, the four adaptations needed to do was come up with what Barton Cottage should look like. And it was interesting seeing, for one thing, how the budgets increased between... The television series from 1971 through the television series of 1981 through the Emma Thompson movie of 1995 and then the final miniseries of 2008. Because in 1971, at least in the section we're up to, you haven't really had a long shot of the cottage. You've just had a close-up of the door and then interiors of two rooms. Which is sort of very much against what you were pointing out about the book, which likes to sort of place the whole of Barton Mm. Cottage in its scenery. Yes. So yes, the 
81, again the miniseries, had a slightly bigger budget so you do get some long shots of the cottage. And it does seem to fit with the description in that it's just a plain grey cottage. There's a window on either side of the front door and then a second level with windows and then a roof, though no windows in the roof, but you can maybe assume the servants didn't get windows. Or they had them round the back or alternatively they were at the gable ends. Yes. And the interiors of that, you do get a sense of the lack of distance between the parlour and the front door. So from the the door to the parlour, you can literally see out the front door as well. The 1995 Emma Thompson movie version, the cottage seems a little bit bigger. You do have windows up in the roof and there are a series of small windows on the upper floor rather than a couple of larger windows. But if you look at the ground floor again, it's just an entrance and a window on either side. So probably again... About the right size, maybe a little bit too big. The rooms inside seem a little bit nicer than they did in the 1981 miniseries. But possibly going a little bit too far is the 2008 miniseries where they built the interiors in Pinewood Studios. But the exteriors were this sort of cottage really close to the sea and it seemed a little bit wide on the ground floor. There were more windows and yet only one exterior window at the front on the upper floor. So it really didn't seem to fit with the description. No, well, the picture you've shown me of it, it definitely doesn't. Mm. And it looks far too old. It's mm. not a modern cottage. And while it hasn't got honeysuckle, it looks as though it could well have honeysuckle. <laughs> well, maybe it would have honeysuckle if it wasn't so close to the beach. Yes. <laughs> In the two earlier miniseries... They arrived and they got servants with the cottage, whereas in the book and in the later adaptations, they take three servants with them, two or three depending on the adaptation. Yeah. And so a big deal is made in the 2008 version that for reasons not gone into, they didn't send the servants ahead. So the place is all a bit of a mess when they arrive. Yes, which which in fact, it's again, they're still being leisure class, in a sense, right at the bottom of leisure class, Mm. but they're definitely leisure class. So surely they would have sent the servants ahead to get it ready for them. Which they do in the book. Yeah, so that was something I thought was an interesting change between the earlier versions and the later versions. Another thing I wanted to talk about was Willoughby. Of the four adaptations, in three of them, Marianne falls... Willoughby is just walking past with his dogs and he picks her up and carries her. A much which is gra- what the book says. Yeah, which is what the book says, except I think he carries her a much greater distance. The yes. book implies they're almost home. Yes. Uh, but, well, I mean, surely if Margaret hasn't even come out with her mother yet, it yeah. can't be very far. Yeah. Whereas in the 1995 one written by Emma Thompson, she kind of goes a bit over the top with Willoughby because he's not there on foot with his dogs. He's on horseback. The rain is teeming down. The horse comes up behind Margaret. She screams. He leaps off the horse. He checks Marianne's ankle. He picks her up. It's so it's so large, our romantic. You could totally see why Marianne completely fell for him because it <laughs> yes. absolutely fit her vision. But it is, I think not what Jane Austen was envisaging. She was envisaging something a little, a fair bit I more prosaic. Think it was even raining. But oh, no, it was raining because that's why they're running down the hill. All right, yes. So, of course, in the two earlier miniseries adaptations, because they've excised Margaret from the story completely, <laughs> yes. um, Marianne is either walking on her own or just walking with Eleanor. But the other thing that particularly struck me with the the second miniseries, the one in 1981, is that Willoughby is genuinely charming. He's better looking than the other men who are in it. He's blonde, which is not how I envisage Willoughby, but he's blonde, no. he's pretty, but he has charm. He, You can totally see why the whole family would 
would quite would like him. Yes, Tom... and why Mrs. Smith would like him. Yes. <laughs> now the Emma Thompson movie has cast Hugh Grant and Alan Rickman as Edward and Colonel Brandon, yeah. so. There was no way they were going to be able to cast someone who is notably better looking than them. Yes. So Greg Wise, who plays Willoughby, is certainly, he's very good looking. He's quite charming. Somehow, somehow though, when he takes Marianne back and they talk about how Marianne has been reading Shakespeare's sonnets to us, he says, look, I carry a copy of the sonnets with me at all times, which obviously isn't pre-planned, but somehow seems a little bit creepy. Yes. (laughs) So he, he is certainly still quite charming, but somehow... The one in the 1981 version, with less drama around his arrival, somehow had a bit more charm. On the other hand, in 2008, you remember I said the 2008 one actually starts with Willoughby's seduction of Eliza. Yes. You don't see his face, you maybe wouldn't pick it's him, but that concept of Willoughby not being a nice person is carried through in his first appearance because when Brandon comes to call just after he's brought them back... Brandon sees Willoughby and Willoughby sees Brandon and there's ominous music and Brandon clearly doesn't like Willoughby. And it's not... Well, Brandon wouldn't have known yet. Well, I can't remember from the last time I watched this and I'm... In this time I'm watching through, I'm only going for the sections that we're up to. So I don't know if it comes out later that Brandon perhaps knew that Willoughby had seduced Eliza but hadn't yet found Eliza. But... Clearly there is bad blood between Brandon and Willoughby. Like It's not just the looks they give each other. It's this background music is very, very yes. honest. And then what you have is there's a ball with Willoughby and Marianne dancing. And then Brandon actually calls Willoughby aside and asks him what his intentions are towards Marianne, which I just thought was completely stupid. And he's got no right to do it. <laughs> which Willoughby says. But yes. again, it just is setting up Willoughby as... There's something sus about him, which you don't get in those earlier versions and you don't get in the book. And I think is so important to the presentation of Willoughby that you don't suspect there's something wrong with him. In that seduction scene, is he is he brutal or is he charming? It's basically a sex scene. All right. So... So it's a bit hard to know. Yeah, yes. because you don't... There's almost no dialogue. It's, it's all about starting with a sex scene. Yes. Now, another thing... I wanted to just comment on is Lady Middleton and how she's presented in these four adaptations. Oh, interesting, yes. Because in the 1971 version, Lady Middleton comes with Sir John when he first visits them. They brought their son with them and she's concerned about him because he's very delicate and she's very focused on him. They haven't actually employed a little boy actor. He's just, he's outside in the garden. She looks through the window and calls out to him. They've obviously picked up that part of the book where her total focus is on her children. Yes. In the next miniseries in 1981, once again, she comes along, she's brought her little boy with her. He's quite annoying. But again, that's consistent with the book. The 1995 movie is interesting in that it's the first adaptation that includes Margaret, but it doesn't include Lady Middleton at all. She and her Uh, children are completely cut from the story. So what you have in that is Sir John Middleton arrives, and Sir John is played by Robert Hardy, and he arrives with Mrs Jennings, his mother-in-law, who's played by Elizabeth Spriggs, who (laughs) she's actually possibly a little bit too nice at the start, but they just inhabit the characters so beautifully. Oh, and they arrive, and they've got about six dogs with them. 
and jumping out of the carriage when they get there. What, when they come to Barton Cottage? When, when they come to Barton Cottage, which is the family haven't even gone inside yet. They yeah. saw them going past, so they obviously bundled into their own carriage and <laughs> caught up with them. Yeah. And he introduces Mrs Jennings as his mother-in-law, but there is no mention whatsoever of what happened to Lady Middleton. Yes. She's not there at all. I guess it's all about cutting the cast down, and they wanted to include Margaret, and I talked about that last week. I think one of the reasons for building up Margaret's character was to enable them to build up Edward's character. Yes. Whereas I guess she felt Lady Middleton didn't add anything to the story. Well, I which mean, she doesn't, she doesn't, in fact. So it does seem a little bit odd that Sir John is doing all this with his mother-in-law, with, with his wife, presumably <laughs> long deceased. through the book, that's all. What to get of Lady Middleton? She's just sort of a house-proud mother. I don't take against Lady Middleton. <laughs> we, we're not given enough to take against mm. her. When we come to the final miniseries in 2008... What you have in that one is they arrive at Barton Park for the evening and they walk in and it's like they're set up for a portrait. You have Lady Middleton surrounded by her children (laughs) with Sir John on one side and Mrs Jennings, I think, is on the other. I talked before about the web series modernisation Eleanor and Marianne take Barton, which is, I think, highly influenced by the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, but where the Lizzie Bennet Diaries was professional scriptwriters, professional actors, Eleanor and Marianne take Barton is entirely a student production. So, you know, the production values are lower, the script isn't as good, the acting isn't as good. I'm still actually quite enjoying it. Because it's all done by students, everyone is much more of an age. So they make some interesting creative casting decisions. They completely get rid of Sir John and Mrs Jennings. And what they have instead is Charlotte Palmer takes on their role. So Charlotte Palmer is there for the whole thing. She's got the Mrs Jennings role, but she's the same age as the rest of them. And Um, is Mr Palmer there? She has a boyfriend. Oh, right. (laughs) Um, And Colonel Brandon is not Colonel Brandon. He's just Brandon. He's a PhD student and he's Charlotte's brother. So that sort of gives more explanation as to why this slightly older, he's 25, PhD student is sort of more involved in the story, but they're still working with their availability of student actors rather than having multiple generations. Yes. But one thing I thought was quite cute in that is the scene where Marianne and Willoughby get stuck into Colonel Brandon and then at the end Willoughby says I dislike him for these three reasons. He wouldn't buy my horse. He (laughs) said it was going to rain when I wanted it to be fine. And Slightly adapted text, but that scene appears exactly in this adaptation, which I thought was quite nice. Oh, right, yes. Um, well, what, there was even a horse in it. Well, no, it wasn't a horse. Um, his motorbike or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's been happening in the Joanna Trollope with this? There's nothing much special to say about the Joanna Trollope one other than this big emphasis on, on needing money. Yeah, because, in fact, I think... The book is suggesting that they really adapted extremely well. They managed to preserve their activities, they preserved their elegance, they preserved what they liked doing anyway in Norland. Yes. And and they're in a lovely setting, Mm. so really they're doing all right. Yes. Obviously they were much better off in Norland, but there are definitely positives to where they are. They have absolutely adapted their way of life. Everything that they think of as central to themselves yes. is preserved. Yes. They don't say, oh, I haven't got enough paints. Or, yeah. In a sense, they've layered their expenses yeah. to exactly fit. I mean, admittedly, they're stuck in with those awful, <laughs> awful people. The, the company isn't as good. <laughs> well, no, 
what was the company like at Norma? Yeah. We've got no idea. Mm. Only Edward is ever going to follow them. Mm. All these parties of their friends and they're obviously <laughs> not going to come from Norland mm. or not going to come yeah. from wherever they were mm. in the Norland area. So I said there's a lot of emphasis in this in the fact that Eleanor was in her about to start her last year of her architecture course and she has to give it up, but she gets yeah. a job. Marianne's sprained ankle is replaced with an asthma attack that Willoughby saves her from. Sorry, that that Wills saves her from. Yes. Um, Their way of getting around the fact that there are three characters called John in this book (laughs) is that Sir John Middleton becomes Jono, John Willoughby becomes Wills, and then I think their brother John just stays as John. Yes. I've been told about another podcast that just started up, which is also reading through Sense and Sensibility. So I actually thought this might be a good time to do a quick recap of the other Jane Austen podcasts that are out there, at least the ones that I'm aware of. I was originally thinking I'd go through and explain which ones I liked and which ones I didn't, but in the end I decided that since all of these are non-professional, I really didn't want to be critical about anyone else, so instead I'm just going to give a chronological list of all the podcasts I'm aware of. So way back when I first started thinking about doing this podcast, which was in mid-2019, There seem to be only two Jane Austen podcasts out there. The oldest that I'm aware of is called First Impressions, Why the Austen Haters Are Wrong. Um, It's been running since December 2015. The description is, Welcome Jane Austen lovers and haters alike. Kristen and Maggie discuss how Austen's classic novels have influenced their lives and challenged them to be better people. So they do about one episode a month and they just pick something to talk about. They previously talked about going to the Jane Austen Society meeting. They've talked about the books. They've talked about adaptations. They've talked about new critical works they've been reading. So just a whole variety of things they choose to talk about. The other one I was aware of before we started was Bonnets at Dawn, which has been running since 2017. And it's Austen versus Bronte in a literary thunderdome. Listen each week as Lauren and Hannah compare and contrast the lives, works and fandoms of Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters. So that, again, just various different topics. One of them is an Austen fan and the other is a Bronte fan. So they take different perspectives on things. Neither of those podcasts were doing close readings of the books. So I thought we'd be offering something a bit different. But then after we'd started work on the podcast and before we released the first episode, I discovered two new podcasts had just launched that year. In July 2019, The Daily Nightly, A Jane Austen Journey, that's one in which Annie and Jesse read through the books five chapters at a time and talk about them, kind of like we're doing, but with some slightly different perspectives. They started with Sense and Sensibility, then they did Pride and Prejudice, and they've just started doing Mansfield Park. Then the other one was the Austen Archives, which started in August 2019. So obviously 2019 was the year for Jane Austen podcasts to start. That one, they're looking at the film adaptations. Every episode, they choose one adaptation and they're doing all film and TV, including the modernizations. As well as those two, also in 2019, but one that I only recently discovered, was one called Manners and Madness, which started in October 2019. (laughs) Um, That one is two friends, they're called Maya and Christian, one who loves both Jane Austen and David Lynch, one who is only passingly familiar with both, explore their bodies of work and the adaptations of that work. So they alternate between doing an Austen work or a David Lynch work. Who's David Lynch? Um, He's a film director, writer, 
musician and artist as well, I discovered when I checked on Wikipedia. Um, he's had, I think, four Academy Award nominations. He's won once. He's also yeah. won sort of Cannes Film Festival awards, that sort of thing. And finally, after all that, is the new one that just started in December 2020, which is called Reclaiming Jane. It's by Emily and Lauren, and their approach is... If you've ever felt like you're not allowed to like Jane Austen, whether because her work is too white, too academic or too straight, we've been there. And this podcast is for you. Each episode we use a different theme to guide our reading, letting us focus on representations of sexuality, race and everything in between. They're not quite doing a close reading in the same way we are, but they're still doing it five chapters at a time. And at the moment, they're kind of running parallel to us. Ours are coming out about a week and a half after theirs. So we're basically tracking through the novel at about the same rate. All right. (laughs) You've been listening to Reading Jane Austen with me, Harriet. And me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 12 to 15 of Sense and Sensibility. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.